This has been a very uh, refreshing weekend, and I pray that you've been refreshed as well. What a joy to be able just to gather and, and lift our hearts in praise to the faithfulness of God as this last song has reminded us that uh, His faithfulness is unfailing. Reminds me too, a great promise of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says, God is faithful who has called you into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. So a part of our joy here at Liberty Church is to be a part of that shared journey of rejoicing in the calling and celebrating the calling and being friends one of another as we walk in that calling. As I mentioned before Justin began worship, this is a bit unusual today because I found my heart deeply stirred about 12 years ago in the remembrances of September 11th and unusual for me in that I wrote this prayer for that time, and though I've never done this before in any other way, I've, I've shared this prayer a number of times at various years at September 11th. And it, and it occurred to me a couple of weeks ago, well, 22 years has passed, but people are forgetting. And above all, the, the heartache and the loss of so many that were impacted that day in an unbelievably tragic way continues, of course, but also the reminder of the vulnerability of our country uh, should be an ongoing timely reminder of how, how much all of us need to be thanking God for the gift of America, the beauty of what America really is, God's gift of this great nation, but then, of course, as we all know, the great uh, challenges and vulnerabilities of this time. So I want to invite you just to share with me in a, in a time of remembrance Never forget. Could you shout that out with me? Never forget. And uh, this, this prayer in your hand is uh, based in a theme, uh, uh, the theme in Psalm 43. Send forth your light and your truth, O Lord. Let them lead us to your holy hill, Psalm 43 says. So I'm going to just ask you uh, to read with me uh, that uh, scripture from the screen and then we'll share in the prayer that you're, you're holding, and uh, we'll pause in a couple of places just for this remembrance to bring back to mind uh, what, it, what it really, the sacrifices of that day. Would you say aloud with me Psalm 43 from the screen? Send forth your light and your truth, O Lord. So on September 10th of 2023, we still remember. We remember September 11th. 2001, and we, we remember with gratitude for those who paid the ultimate price, for those who ran into the flames, for those who, who um, joined together to uh, bring a jet, a jet down in Pennsylvania rather than letting it go uh, where it may have gone toward the capital of the United States, and we also give thanks to God as we do so that... Um, the Lord himself is the true light, not an artificial light, but the real light. And so even those two beams from ground zero, though they may speak of history, they remind us there is a light that transcends all of this darkness that uh, so often seems to gather in these horrific times, even now, as we see the, the culture and moral darkness of our nation. And so... Would you join with me, and uh, I'd like to just invite you to stand and let us pray. Would you stand with me as we pray? 
and lift our prayer unto the Lord and we just um, give you thanks, God, for your grace and guidance. Let us pray together. Oh, Lord, darkness fell on the heart of America on September 11th, 2001. Evil men devised a plot of terror that poured pain into the souls of millions. Your word clearly shows the source of such evil and the cure for its poison. Sin is the disease, Christ is the cure. Today, as we pray for all survivors and their families, for the injured and ill, still suffering from the disaster of 9-11, for the loved ones of all those fallen heroes who ran into burning buildings, for those who fought terrorists in the air. And we pause right now for a moment to thank God as we revisit Ground Zero that those unforgettable moments remind us of the sacrifice that was paid for so many to live. And then let us pray, we lift. We lift our voices in heart agreement. Send forth your light and your truth in this hour. Send forth your light and your truth to this nation. Send forth your light and your truth in and through your church. We ask for your light to flood into the dark dwellings of those who feel no hope. Send your light today to deliver us as a nation. Send your light to ignite fresh passion in the hearts of the redeemed. Awaken us, O Lord, to hear the word of God as it washes our hearts. Shake us, O Lord, from complacency. Stir us, O Lord, to boldly believe you. Guard us, O Lord, from wandering. Guide us, O Lord, into decisions that honor you. Bring the light of your good news into every arena in which we live and serve. Could we repeat that line together? Bring the light of your good news into every arena in which we live and serve. Bring your light and your truth to the lonely and the lost to all who mourn the condition of America today, to all who are in authority over others, to those who ache for justice, to those who cry for answers, to those who struggle for survival, to veterans and wounded warriors, victims of abuse and silent sufferers. Lift them into your healing presence. Make the glory of knowing God real to each of these. Prepare our hearts to receive your word and the guidance of your spirit. Make the lordship of Jesus real in our lives, arming us with your light and your truth. And we will rejoice that you placed us here for such a time as this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Lord, we do pray with gratitude and expectancy for the grace of God to awaken prayer in the hearts of millions across the land today, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our pathfinders and explorers are going to their time together. Again, as I've said, take a moment to reach around and just greet somebody near you if you could. Uh, thank you for sharing in this prayer, and uh, we give the peace of Christ to those around us and love. I don't know if you ever heard about a, a silly story that I think helps kick off what we're talking about today. Um, a group of animals and insects had decided <laughs> by halftime, 
the lead of the big animals had expanded to 119 to zero. Well, you can imagine the consternation during half that halftime show must have been strange. The, the third quarter, small animals and insects had produced little offensive yardage and were unable to even make a single tackle. So when the second half started, the lion received a kickoff on 25-yard line and was tackled on the 37-yard line. On the first down, the bear went up the middle and was toppled at the line of scrimmage for no gain. On the next play, the cheetah attempted to run around an end but was tackled for a one-yard loss. Stunned by such swift action, the cheetah looked around on the bottom of the pile as he got up from being tackled, and he saw a centipede with a big smile on his face. And he stared at the centipede for a minute and said, are you the one who tackled me? This is the first time I've been tackled all day. I sure did. The gutsy, multi-legged little critter replied, I also tackled the lion and the bear. And then somebody on the insect and little animals team turned and said, well, where were you the entire first half when we never scored? He said, I was tying my shoelace. <laughs> In church life, we are all on the team, and we're called to be a part of an active, dynamic, grace-empowered endeavor for other people to taste and experience the goodness of God. And so last Sunday, we talked a little bit about the things we could draw from those seven characters of the book of Acts that we looked at in July and August, and as we looked at the kind of a takeaway from Mary and Matthias and Barnabas and, and Ananias and uh, Philip and Stephen and Cornelius, we saw a common element for all was a response to God by faith, a response to God by faith. Someone got me a little uh, bottle of these wonderful examples from the Middle East of these tiny mustard seeds. When Jesus said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be thou removed. Now, what's striking is Jesus intentionally chooses these tiny objects to remind us of outsized potential. And I want to share with you a bit today now about the heartbeat of our vision. I think about this as kind of like putting a stethoscope on the heart of, of church life because of the team reality. We're all a part of a great endeavor, a great opportunity to experience something that encourages and nurtures the vitality of a growing dynamic relationship. And in that teamwork, motivation and a capacity to respond is vital. That's why as we think about our congregational experience, one of the things that I've sought to do is to kind of put into a nutshell, what are the things, spiritually speaking, that we're aiming at? Now, I want to ask David to pass a chart around to everybody that sort of tracks with the heartbeat. This is just a way for me to put into visual form something that has grown and, uh, and been a part of my heart and my passion and I guess you might say my DNA code for uh, the last many years. And as I think about it, I realize, of course, that 
Congregational life has a lot in common with the health of a body. So as you're receiving that uh, chart today, think a little bit about the comparison first before we look at that together. But think about the vibrancy or vitality of, of our own heart physically. If you think about the physical body, uh, I, I was surprised to learn uh, that um, it is estimated that if you've placed all of the arteries, veins, and tiny capillaries of the human body and stretched them out in linear fashion, I found this hard to believe, they say that, that the stretching out of all of those tissue would come to 60,000 miles. Now, as I thought about that, that sounded preposterous until I found a resource that, uh, that is uh, verifying in the Journal of Cardiovascular Pathology from an interesting article from a, from a cardiologist researcher who calls it a lion, a light-hearted look at a lion-hearted organ or the amazing capacity of the circulation system of the human body and verified why they estimate such a huge linear measurement for capillaries. And it made me think about this, that what we don't see uh, in our physical body are those tiniest capillaries, and yet the entire network of the bloodstream is every single part of it is vital. Just as that little centipede's tackle uh, illustrates that uh, the tiniest among us have a role to play, that in the physical body, the capillaries and the veins have a vital role to play. Circulation and nutrients are to the bloodstream of the body what worship and the word are for the body of Christ. So when we think about it this way, we realize that, of course, circulation is absolutely crucial. And what we're doing right here, even in worshiping together and sharing together and receiving, giving and receiving the word of God, is a part of the circulating of the life-giving grace and power of God. So in that light, um, I think that what I have tried to do is to kind of summarize from my passion for congregational life um, these, these areas that we share together with the vision of the Word of God, the inerrancy of Scripture on the very bottom. In other words, the bottom of the chart uh, speaks to the foundation in all of our lives that uh, we explored in, in, a, in, in much in depth back in March and April when we did our Bible Open Bible Workshop, that God's Word is the foundation for life and growth. And just read again with me this text at the bottom that we uh, delved into quite a bit back in April. Let's read it aloud together. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for instruction in righteousness. Now, out of this um, foundational fact comes the primary motivational power of the early church, which is poured into the lives of every born-again child of God. And again, just below, above the foundation there is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
So prominent was the declaration in the book of Acts, and if you would turn to Acts chapter 2 in your Bible, so, uh, so prominent was the declaration, Jesus is Lord, that we saw two weeks ago, and actually three weeks ago, and we talked about the water baptism experience, that the Bible tells us the very heart of that new birth experience before we give our hearts to Christ, as we come to Christ and receive Him in our hearts, is confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. And once that born-again reality, the truth of salvation in every heart becomes established, then as we saw three or four weeks ago, the water baptism is the follow-up of that. It's the visual, visible portrayal outwardly of what God has already done mightily and miraculously in the heart. And so with that in mind, it's notable that as you turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at something here that relates to why these seven areas that are around the periphery of the congregational heartbeat, uh, what I am seeking to do is share in a broader way what even a very small church can embrace. You think about a telescope, let's say. You go somewhere and you uh, get an opportunity to view into one of these real high-powered telescopes. You know, you're looking through a very tiny lens. If, but if you're using a high-powered telescope, a tiny lens can convey to you the wonder of the stellar heavens. Well, there is a sense in which the analogy to me works for congregational life in this sense. We all know the limitations of human beings. We all know that all churches have challenges and problems and are imperfect in all kinds of hundreds of ways. Why? Because of imperfect people. Can I hear an amen? Right? So, but what we often miss, I believe, is vision. See, the heartbeat of our vision ties into my life in Habakkuk chapter 2 where the Bible says, Write the vision and make it plain that he may run that readeth it. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there's no vision, the people perish. One translation says, where there's no revealing of the purpose of God, people cast off restraint. Another translation said, they just do their own thing. <laughs> In other words, we're inclined to scatter, but God as the shepherd is a gatherer. And how are we to be gathered? Well, we're to be gathered around purpose. And the congregational heartbeat for worship and the word is, at the very center of that chart, is to prepare God's people for works of service. But none of that is possible without the foundation being in place. And then that second tier above foundation, if you look at that, is what Acts chapter 2 brings into clear focus. Because the lordship of Jesus Christ quite simply means that I surrender to Jesus the right to choose or the power to vary the consequences of that decision. I surrender to Christ my whole heart. I surrender my life to Christ. It's really notable that in the book of Acts, the word Lord, sovereign, supreme, commander, we might say, king of kings, lord of lords, the true authority risen from the dead, that word Lord applying to Jesus occurs 107 times 
in the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. And I want to show you one in, in your Bible there, if you would look with me in your Bible at Acts chapter 2, verse 24. It's absolutely just a remarkable thing to realize how the very truth of the resurrection of Jesus brings into focus the purpose of the local church. Now, it might be hard for some people to see the connection between those, and that's why I've tried to illustrate it this way in this chart, that because of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, God has called us together to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. On that foundation, all aspects of pastoral vision and care, the total picture of what a congregational vision for shepherding and developing and encouraging and equipping the saints, and the ministry of the body itself, all of these point up to our central purpose. And I'd like to show you in Acts chapter 2, if you have your own Bible, find Acts chapter 2, verse 24. This is where Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he makes this astounding explanation about what happened in that, empty, in that tomb before it was empty. What happened before it was the empty tomb is that the Bible says when Christ accomplished the full sacrifice of shedding his blood on the cross for us, in Colossians chapter 2, the Bible says in verse 15 that through the blood of his cross, Jesus stripped away the power of principalities and authorities and made an open show of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In Ephesians 2.19, the Bible says that through his blood, Jesus made a way that you and I can come to our Heavenly Father and have access to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the blood of His cross, Ephesians 2 says, Christ made peace where there was implacable hostility. And in Colossians 2, through the blood of His cross, Christ destroyed the authority of satanic power over the child of God. In other words, when I say Jesus is Lord, when I commit my heart to Christ as Lord, when we as a congregation say, you are Lord, we are declaring the conquest of the risen Lord over all the circumstances that we face in this planet. And that makes our witness as followers of Jesus a living witness. Acts 2.24 is where Peter explained why this is true. And notice the wording of Acts 2.24. God raised him up. That is, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The total authority of the power of God in the resurrection is a phenomenal fact that death, the ultimate enemy of all human beings, the enemy that 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says is the last enemy that will finally be destroyed, death could not keep its icy finger grip around the Son of God. Jesus arose from the dead triumphant over hell, death, and the grave. Now, 
the text goes on for Peter to proclaim and explain why this was true. Peter begins to quote in Acts 2.25 from the 16th Psalm. And that is a psalm where a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, the psalmist David was speaking poetically and prophetically about the coming promised one. And in the very heart of that brief psalm, David was expressing his confidence in Yahweh, the living God, and in the very wording of his faith, the Holy Spirit infused a prophecy of the coming resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you're reading in your own Bible, you'll notice that the text is indented there at the middle of verse 25, indicating, most typesetters do it this way, indicating that Peter now is quoting the psalm. Now, this is really notable because this explosive, dynamic, life-changing power of belonging to Christ and being a part of the gift of his risen life, this makes a difference in your life. Look at verse 25. For David says concerning him. Concerning who? Concerning Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And what does David say in Psalm in Acts 2.25? I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, in that 28th verse, David's prophecy is bringing forth the result of the resurrection of Jesus and showing the future heirs of that glorious power is born again, redeemed followers of Jesus. So the future church was designed to be comprised of people who've accepted Christ as Lord and of the Holy Spirit. And the resurrection life of Jesus is a reality at the very heart of a true church because we acknowledge none of this can be done apart from his grace and power. I like in light of that, uh, the paraphrased version of this in the message translation, the, it's, a, it's a, a creatively expressed paraphrase, not necessarily the sharpest translation, but it carries over something that helps us understand it in our modern language. And, and as I said, Peter's drawing directly from the 16th Psalm. Why? Because the pulse of new life in Christ is the very DNA of the church. One reason we should love our churches, one reason we should cherish church life, one reason I'm sharing the heartbeat of a congregation, in spite of the many challenges that our church and all churches face, is that we need a rekindled vision in our day of why church is so vital. It's not just a little optional thing that... Uh, is one of many things on the checklist that are optional for a child of God. There's something integral and something energizing and inescapably priceless 
about the circulation, just like the capillaries and veins and arteries of the human body, the circulation of the bloodstream. In many ways, God uses the experience of forming, developing, planting, growing, committing to congregational life. That's a part of that wonderful picture. And the paraphrase of uh, Eugene Peterson, I think, does this uh, a beautiful way of expressing what that psalm meant to Peter. He's quoting David when he says, I'm glad from the inside out, ecstatic in my soul, for I've pitched my tent in the land of hope. You've placed my feet on the life path with your face shining joy like sunshine all around. Now that rendering reminds us that what Psalm, what Acts 2.28 is saying is that Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when the church is birthed, he's connecting the, the new emerging church with the power of the resurrection life of Christ and showing, as verse 28 says, that this joy, this dynamic gladness that comes from being in the presence of God is something not only good for the individual, yes, that's real, but there is a very distinctive sense in which God's gracious presence is given to his joined and united people. There's something about worshiping together that is so vital. The other text that's on the screen I'd like you to turn to in your Bible, we'll take a moment to turn to that one too, is Colossians 1.27. Now this one puts it in a little different uh, uh, framework in light of how vital it was for the earliest believers to, to hear the good news of Jesus Christ raised from the dead touches every ethnic group. And we talked two weeks ago, we talked about that a little bit more in depth about in the Cornelius story. That um, this glorious fact of God's good news was originally sort of kept in the vault of the Jewish experience. The purpose for that was to demonstrate the covenant faithfulness of God. But all the way into the earliest phases of the covenant with Abraham, God had shown and give hints that this is for the whole world. Even way back in the days of Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm giving you these promises. Why? So that in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the, the error that the Jewish nation made time and time again was to try to, to kind of hoard that in their own mind to their own ethnic identity. God used the ethnic identity in a very distinctive way and has promises for Israel, but it was to make them a vehicle of the good news of the gospel touching the entire world. And then we find it here in Colossians 1.27 worded in a, in a way that indicates even now, even in our churches, even in our day, all of us, think of it, all of us, participate in this circulating of the life of God, even in a simple gathering like this one here, where we worship, we encourage, we pray for one another, we reach out in the love of Christ. All of this is connected to that larger vision. It's looking through God's lens, God's telescope to the bigger picture. And verse 27 of Colossians 1, if you've got that in your Bible, let's take a moment to look at that one. To them, God chose to make known... What are the riches of the glory of this mystery 
the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. At the very beginning of that 27th verse, the words to them, it's referring to all of us, in essence, because it's telling us that all of these truths went out, not only in Paul's generation, but they were intended to continue to our generation. So to them, say it with me, to us, God has chosen to make something known. And what is it? He's chosen to make known among all the nations. What is it? The glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. I like to say it a different way. The living Christ, the risen Lord in the new birth. We've asked Christ not only to be Lord, but we've come to say, Lord, dwell in my life. Dwell in my heart. And God's word in the New Testament gives us both the individual and the corporate or together pictures of this. We have here in Colossians 1.27, Christ in me, the hope of glory. We have in, uh, in Revelation chapter 21, God's ultimate plan that the tabernacle of God would be with men and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and he will be their God. This is the entire goal, the ultimate, even the 21st chapter of Revelation, indicating this was God's plan, not just individual salvation. That's as glorious as that is. We, we can shout a thousand years for the salvation of one's soul. But that God has a corporate plan, and it's reflected in churches, yes, imperfect churches, yes, churches with problems, churches with limitations, churches that don't have it all together, but God loves the church. And the reason for the heartbeat of this vision that I'm sharing is that I have a desire, I have a call from God to engender and encourage and cultivate love for local churches. I've often made the joke, I'm a churchaholic. And I don't apologize for it because I love churches. I love this church. I love our church experience. <coughs> And I love the diversity of churches. And I love the fact that God, God is doing a work in our day. And he's got a unique, distinctive plan for the church. But our culture diminishes the value of congregational life. To the point that it's relegated to just a little minor issue on the back burner. But when you dig back into that text of Colossians 1.27, that next verse tells us why it should be at the heartbeat of a vision of a healthy church. And that is Colossians 1.28. I hope you have your Bible still open there. In Colossians 1.28, Paul now takes this Christ in me, the hope of glory, and he applies it to the church. And this is how he does it. He says, he is the one, that is, Christ is the one, we proclaim. We're not proclaiming human personality. We're not proclaiming denomination. We're not proclaiming uh, a system. We're not proclaiming a philosophy. We're not proclaiming a psychological program to make your life better. No, no, we're proclaiming, who are we proclaiming? Christ. It's about Jesus. This church thrives in the celebration of who Christ is. Jesus, our risen Lord. And Paul says the same for himself. He's the one we're proclaiming. I'm reading the New International Version, by the way. Your translation may read a little differently, but follow me in Colossians 1.28 just for a moment. Christ is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone complete in Christ Jesus. 
Amazing word there. The word is translated in some Bibles, perfect. That we may present them perfect in Christ. Now that word throws a monkey wrench in many people's brains because we think, well, nobody's perfect, right? But the word, the Greek word, teleos, behind that word perfect, is the word from which we get our English word telescope. And teleos is used widely in the Greek language as well as in the New Testament. And it means the goal, the ultimate goal of fulfilling a purpose. Or it can mean completion of purpose. It can mean completing your race. It can mean fulfilling your goal. It can mean blossoming or coming into full maturity. It's used in Ephesians 4, 14 for maturing the saints. So the picture is not human perfection, no. The picture is the word of God in a local church, the worship of God's people, worship of the word, fellowship, encouragement, sharing our gifts in Christ, stewardship. It includes our giving and our, our investing in the very best that we can in, in our congregational life. And all of these things together are a part of the, of the communal part of the Christian life. The part that links us heart to heart and, and, and nurtures within us that wonderful sense that we're on a God-given, spirit-empowered journey together. And it's for a good goal. And this was so important to the Apostle Paul that he finishes that first chapter of Colossians. Another brief verse, if you look at that 29th verse, it's very brief, it's a quick verse, but it shows us something amazing about the Apostle Paul, and it is this purpose, Paul says, is why I strenuously contend with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. Colossians 1.29 is one of those verses that to me stands out as an awesome example of an overlooked truth. And that is, the presence of the Holy Spirit does not exempt us from tying our shoelaces and getting into the game. That is, Paul puts it this way. I can do nothing apart from Christ. I can accomplish nothing of eternal significance unless Christ, by his power, is working in me. And yet, because of his great love, I am now pouring my life energetically and strenuously into this goal. Read that Colossians 1.29 again. It's so wonderful. To this end I strenuously contend. Now, if we stop there, we might say, well, Paul, you're trying to do it in your own flesh. No, no, no. He says, I'm engaged. I'm like the centipede, you know. I'm tying my shoelaces, you know. I'm in the game. I'm there. But he says, it's all because of the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Now, as you think about this, this, this chart here um, is one way that I think of just kind of summarizing around the periphery is areas. These are not just little topics. They're big topics. And each of them could have their own sermon, obviously, of course. Some of them have the sermon series. But my, my point is, it's kind of like a, you ever had those in the washing machine, you get those little pods, and it's highly concentrated, and you drop it in, and it diffuses. This is a highly concentrated vision here uh, that add water, and it will expand, I assure you. 
But uh, the point is that around the periphery, what I have tried to do is to kind of in the spokes of the wheel, you might say, is to say there are these seven dimensions of the life of a believer, all of our lives, that are nurtured and cultivated in the church and by the church. And these are areas where, like the Apostle Paul said, I strenuously give my soul as the Holy Spirit works in me. First, the family dimension at the top. God is the father of the family. Ephesians 3.14 says, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And families and the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of the life in the womb, the sanctity of the preborn, all the way to the care of the aged, multi-generational love for families. Though families face so many problems and challenges and there are so many hurt and broken families in our culture, it's exactly why God wants to give a church a sense of the dynamic of God's gospel being hope for families. This church, any church that loves Christ, should be a church lovingly praising God and praying for families. God is the creator of the family. God is the creator of male and female. God is creator of the sanctity of the home. God is the creator of, of the wondrous gift of the infinitesimally tiny embryo in the womb of every expectant mother. From the moment of conception, that little baby is a priceless individual in, in the sight of God of inestimable worth. And this is why we are unapologetically and absolutely confidently and continuously pro-life from in every aspect. The devotional dimension there to your left has to do with our daily walk with God, our personal time alone with God, our vocational life. God cares about everything going on in your work life. In fact, if you just think about it this way, I kind of put a little bit more uh, thought in how we express this this way, that uh, work and gifts and talents and goals that means the totality of who you are is, of a, uh, is a vital part of walking under the Lordship of Jesus. That means your work matters. That means that business you own, that employer you work for, that, that sports team that you are a part of, that, that political office that you may serve in, that, that role of life as a school teacher, whatever your role in life is, the vocational part of the vision of a healthy church is we're with you, we're for you. Day by day, 24-7, 365 days a year, God is equipping us to be living ambassadors. And yes, your work matters. Your gifts matter. Your talents matter. Koinonia, of course, has to do with fellowship. It's the wonderful dynamic of, uh, that we don't walk alone. And it's, fellowship is so much more than a backslap and a bear hug and a potluck supper. Fellowship is deeply connecting and communicating and encouraging and understanding. Sometimes good fellowship is expressed just in listening to somebody going through a difficult time. In the financial arena, money management matters so much. Not only in the sense of ultimately the challenges of life, but money management matters for happiness, doesn't it? Uh, stress over money issues is one of the great stresses on many marriages and families. Financial management is an area the Bible speaks directly to in a very positive and very proactive and very effective way. And again, that's a part of a healthy church's vision to encourage and celebrate and, and be a part of helping people move successfully in that arena. 
Harvesting has to do with the missions part of our congregational experience. And then servanthood, I just call servanthood the Savior's way. When Jesus was with the disciples in the upper room that night, and he, he took off the outer garment around him, and after they had the supper, we know in John 13 that Jesus took the outer garment off of his tunic and carried a pail of water and a towel, and he comes in to these men who had followed him for three and a half years on the dusty roads of Galilee. They had seen him open the eyes of the blind. They'd seen him raise the dead. They'd seen him cleanse the leper. They had seen the Lord Jesus take a, a few loaves and fishes and bless them before the Father and multiply them. And disciples went out and multiplied. The food multiplied in an astonishing way so that a crowd of well over 12, 13, 14,000 in all accounting women and children was fed with a tiny beginning resources because the Lord had touched it and brought it to the Father. This Jesus, this Savior, this life giver, this shepherd, this king, this teacher is now kneeling before the feet of the very disciples he had called from the fishing business, from the tax collector's booth, from the ordinary paths of life and he now kneels before them and begins to do the menial task that was common in that culture. For us, it would be equivalent to cleaning toilets, taking out the trash. It wasn't a ceremonial meal. It was, a, it was an act of expressing and demonstrating that Jesus would do the menial task. Everybody got feet washed in one way or another. Most of them washed their own feet. But now Jesus takes the role of a servant, the King of Kings, the majestic Messiah, the miracle-working teacher. And he kneels before them and he begins to wash their feet, starting with Simon Peter. And Simon objects at first and says, Lord, you, I can't let you wash my feet. What would you say? How would you feel if Jesus of Nazareth came in this moment and knelt? and began to take my shoes off like he was going to wash my feet. I would have Peter's reaction. Lord, it's not your place to wash my feet. But Jesus said, Peter, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. The genius of that statement was, Peter, you and I have a destiny to move together but you've got to be willing to accept my act of servanthood. Why? Because the ultimate act of servanthood was his death on the cross. And there is no way of escape from our sins unless we accept that we needed that ultimate act of sacrificial servanthood. No deliverance from sin apart from the shedding of the Savior's blood. So in his practical servanthood, he demonstrates what the ultimate servanthood brings to humanity. Now, Peter turns the situation around again and says, well, in that case, don't just wash my feet. Wash my head and wash all of me. <laughs> That's what Peter said. Well, for us, we have to step back and say, Lord, I see you as the servant and I stand in awe. The, the Apostle Paul wrote about it in Philippians 2 when he said, let this mind be in you which was in Christ, 
he was equal with God, laid aside the privileges of deity. It's like that outer robe that he took off to wash their feet. He laid aside the privilege of being the eternal one, and he took voluntarily the role of a servant. Well, you might say, well, what does that have to do with the church vision? I'll tell you, it's at the very heart of what makes churches thrive. It is that sense of me stepping in, of individuals serving for the glory of God. And with Jesus as our model, the, the Savior's way was to choose the role of a servant, not to draw attention to himself, but to demonstrate a powerful principle. He put it like this to the disciples in, in Matthew 20, 28, when he said, the Son of Man, the Messiah, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I love that sparkling sense of sacrificial servanthood that we see in the life of Jesus. It reminds us of why, why it was that in all of the majestic prophecies of the coming of Jesus, that the focus was on the servant Lord who would deliver the captives. Now, I want to close with this, and as I do, I want to pray for anybody reading a, a little section here that I'm going to ask you to read part of. Isaiah's prophecy speaks of Messiah this way. It says, Thus says the mighty one, even the Lord, the Creator. I love this translation. The outstretcher of the heavens. Think of that. God is the one who outstretched the heavens. He spreads out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people and the spirit to those who walk in it. And God says here in Isaiah 42, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I have called you. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people and as a light for the nations. As the apostles were proclaiming the gospel and planting churches in Acts 13, this is the prophecy that they explained their purpose. They were fulfilling the prophecy. The Lord has commanded us, saying, I've sent you to be a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when you go back to Isaiah's prophecy, you get the purpose. It's the life-giving purpose of a healthy church. And it is that a part of our calling is simply to convey, because of what Christ has done for us, that fulfilled purpose to open the eyes to open the eyes that are blind. Read this next part aloud with me. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons, those who sit in darkness. One translation renders that those confined in its gloom. As we pray today, there could be people that are facing gloomy times. And I'm gonna ask you to pray with me. Because when we think of the purpose of the heartbeat of a vision of a healthy church, we realize that it's nothing less than the extension of this gospel-empowered truth. That in all that we do, in our work life, in our devotional life, in our family life, in our financial life, in all of these areas, that the goal of a healthy church is to be, with, the wor with worship and the Word of God, to be cultivating a healthy circulation of the life-giving principles of God. So that as God's people go out, we're commissioned, just as Isaiah's prophecy says, to bring light into the darkest and gloomiest places.
Lord, as we bow together in prayer, we know there are places today, and all of us are aware of them in some way or another. There are places of gloom and darkness. There are places of discouragement and despair. But your life-giving gospel breaks through those chains. Your light, like a laser, beams into the hearts of people struggling in places of despair and darkness. And God, we ask that we could be quickened in our lives as followers of Jesus with a fresh awareness that it's nothing less than the very resurrection life of Jesus that is conveyed in a congregation that realizes among imperfect people in imperfect circumstances, often with challenges that we don't understand, that your good news compels us to love and to serve and to give. And what an honor and joy it is. Hallelujah. I'm going to invite you for just a moment as we're praying. You could be here today and maybe you've thought a little bit about uh, a, a situation in your life today. Maybe there's something bringing some heaviness of heart. And I mean this in a very uh, moment of empathy that I believe the Holy Spirit brings to all of us. Would you lift your hand if you're facing something right now that you find kind of gives you a heavy heart? If you don't mind just acknowledging that with a hand up, it's just that we could pray for you. I want to pray. Lift that hand and leave it up just for a moment. And, and, and may I simply say, uh, one, one of the wondrous things Jesus was saying as he washed those disciples' feet was, I'm, sending, I'm doing this to show you that I'm going to send the Comforter to you. And the Comforter is going to come in person. The Holy Spirit comes in person, just like the Son did. So he's personally here. And Lord, we thank you that these hands lifted reflect whatever may be the cause behind this heaviness of heart, the Holy Spirit is their comforter. And I thank you, Lord, for your empathetic, powerful grace flowing with consoling power to each person. Lord, give us today in all of our lives a renewed awareness of the personal presence of the Holy Spirit. May each one today know that you also send care and compassion through loving friends and, and the body of Christ. And Lord, we know it's all very individualized, but we ask you to give grace to each person to have a, a quiet time of reflecting and receiving your sweet comfort, the heavenly dove that lights upon them to assure them that you're with them. Lord, for those who might need or desire a, a personal encounter, a time of sharing a prayer with Scripture, uh, make that time available, we pray. Make it, make it a priority in our lives and our hearts. If you need someone to meet with you just for confidential prayer for a brief time, but to share Scripture, just to listen, to share, to receive from Christ, if you have any questions you'd like some care about, uh, please see me afterwards. And there are several people in this team here who are happy to pray with you and meet with you confidentially. But Lord, just before we go out, I just want to thank the Lord together today for quickening this church body to be light extended in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to ask you just to sing one song uh, with just, just do a little acapella. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen. The glory of the Lord.